Greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa, uh, Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This show has been created to bring to light a need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in the lack of a centralized African-based culture in the black race as it exists in Western civilization and the Western Hemisphere. My name is Clarence Jones, and I'm your host today. I'm going to use my show um, to make a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa as a platform for the many different kinds of black people to gather around and to rally around. I would take Kwanzaa and change it into a year-round system instead of a once-a-year holiday. And so talking about Kwanzaa and, and, and pumping it up and boom, saying how important we need Kwanzaa, uh, the question is, why have I chosen Kwanzaa? I think that is a legitimate question. Kwanzaa is African. It is of Africa, but not specific to a particular tribe of Africa. So it is inclusive to all African peoples. Kwanzaa is a first fruits harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, nationality, geography, or ethnicity. The African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all black people can rally around, which would lead to better camaraderie, familiarity, which would lead to better continuity, and more camaraderie, which would lead to an enhanced ability to coordinate and orchestrate as one force. And of course, the results of all these processes together are what is called unity. Unity is a key ingredient that has been lacking in the black uh, population and has been at the root, it's been a root problem that, um, that can be found at the core of many of its struggles and been a major impediment to its ability to deal with adversities, struggles, and its enemies as one force. So I'm going to take this show to make a case for the need of a central culture in the black population and the practicality of using Kwanzaa as that cultural platform. I'm going to cite history, my personal life as a pro athlete, current events, and books I've read as illustrations of that need. This week, I'm changing it up a little bit. I wanted to, I ran out of time, and I said, the next time we're, I'm on air, I'm going to get right into the books, because that's, you know, obviously, I have an idea, I have an, an opinion. Everyone has an opinion. What are you going to do, that, and which is the major question, what are you going to do to bring credibility to what you're saying? Be it your own experiences, my own experiences, other people's experiences, historic, or what have you, current events. And, and bring that to the table to make my case for me. So this week, I'm going to uh, talk about Professor Manning Marable's book, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America. I'm going to read ex excerpts from the book and talk about it. And uh, talk about, you know, to make my case for me. And we're going to look, ask the questions of, we're going to look at the black the black domination and the lack of black civilization and the black, the, the black man's uh, not inability because the black man built civilizations and societies thousands of years ago, but we're going to look into the consequences of him uh, going away from that for the last couple of thousand years. So uh, back to the normal uh, progression of the show, I'm bringing this show to say, to show how important culture is to the survival of any ethnic group, 
So the question is, what is culture and why is it important? Culture is a playbook for a race. Uh, it is a rendezvous point for any ethnic group or sports team. It's a coming together of, of ideas, shared values, and beliefs. Culture is, it must be learned. You're not simply born with it. Just like you're not born to walk, somebody teaches you how to walk. Somebody teaches you how to eat, eat food. Somebody teaches you what's important. I played professional football for 10 years, and I was more of a finesse player using my athleticism, quickness, and technique to keep a job. That was not my ideology, though. That was not my belief system with regards to playing professional football or how football was played. I like physical football, hard-nosed, tough uh, types of football, running, handing the ball off and running the ball instead of passing the ball and having a strong defense. That is my belief and ideology, even though physically I was not necessarily built to be in that system. That's my belief system. Culture gives you a belief system because it exposes you to the ways of any culture, any system, any belief system of the ethnic group. So it is a connecting point. Culture is a connecting point of the race, its ancestral rituals, successful uh, procedures, and what have you. Culture is about symbols, artifacts, flags, anything that brings nostalgia and brings us, that reminds us, reminds us of who we are. And not only who we are, who we are together, collectively. Culture is that center point um, for death and birth rituals. Uh, rituals are uh, very important. Culture is an economic strategic planning of a race or ethnic group. Acquisition, business, startups, all that goes into culture. Culture is educating. Uh, educating in, uh, your culture can teach you that educating and obtaining a high-paying job is very important to this culture, which means leads to, emanates from having good grades. Culture does that. Culture is a transporting point, uh, transporting the history of its identities. Uh, culture tells you who you are. Jewish people call themselves the chosen people. We are the chosen ones. And so when, when you have that, your culture tells you you're as good, if not better, than other people around you, regardless of your particular status. So culture, you may be a newly migrating ethnic group that's poor and, and you're doing the menial labor, labor jobs, but if your culture tells you you are the, the chosen ones, that's telling your kids and, and every, everyone coming behind that group to keep working and get to that point where you are, in fact, the chosen people, where you are the people who aren't just doing menial labor jobs. You aren't the people that are the housekeepers and, and mowing lawns and stuff, and that's it. Your culture is the one that tells you that you're worthy to be the doctors and lawyers and, and mayors of city. Culture does that. So culture is the economic, social, phys and physiological, and spiritual, uh, phys physiological, spiritual, geographical rallying point for an ethnic group. So as far as, you know, where do we, when do we come together? How do we come together? Where do we come together? Culture does all that. It's a template for the race. Uh, it, without culture, it literally cannot exist as a cooperative entity. 
race uh, culture is very important. Um, culture is, is it gives a sense it 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 uh, it gives you a sense. It's the rendezvous point for the race. It gives you a sense of identity. Um, it is so critical to the existence of a race and, and, and it's not just about land. It's not just about even language, which is a critical point of culture. It's, it reaches out to you in the mind. Culture is in your mind. Uh, as ever, as much as it is, as it is in the land, as much as it is in property you hold, culture is all of that. And so only culture can love a specific people, government, children, uh, protect its people. Only culture can teach how to love each other. Only culture can teach why education is important. Only culture, only culture can teach you why, why power is important to you and how to use it for yourself and the people in your ethnic group. Culture is the platform that teaches you that. Culture can give you a serviceable dynamic between genders. Culture can organize you around economics. Culture can properly dispute uh, it, it can, wow, culture can properly dis distribute life-saving societal develop developing knowledge. Let me say that again. <laughs> culture gives you, gives an ethnic group knowledge that helps that ethnic group or, or race or country survive and prosper. So again, culture can create symmetry between the genders. Clearly, culture is important in this world, and the ethnic groups that are have a strong centralized culture historically tend to do better than ones that are decentralized. And so that's the whole point of this show, and the whole point uh, that I'm trying to make with the show is that as African Americans, we need that, and that if we had that, that could help us in any number of of ways, more than just political more than just economic. So since I've made the case that central culture, centralized culture is a key ingredient that has been missing in the black race for generations has been an, and has been an important component to the survival missing that has impeded its ability as far as survival and prosperity. The question now is, are there historic examples of ethnic groups that have benefited from a, a strong culture and, a, and more specifically, a strong centralized culture. And of course, uh, we, my, my easiest, uh, but there are other groups that we're, we definitely want to get into. So there are the Japanese, Vietnamese, Chinese, uh, the in, in Jewish uh, ethnic groups. There are a lot of other ones as well that we hopefully we will get a chance to look at. We're going to look at different books and everything. But the offhand, I, I my my go to is of course the strength of the Jewish culture has definitely aided them throughout history and the centralized nature of their culture. 
This ethnic group has been consistently persecuted and resented for thousands of years. Going back to the Middle Ages, they used to be the tax collectors and rep representatives for the feudal lords and kings of Eastern Europe, namely Poland. Uh, they were the economic overseers in Eastern in the Ukraine, uh, resulting in a lot of anti-Semitism and distrust because they were making sure wealth was taken from the peasant class and given to those uh, overlords and the power brokers uh, as far as the kings and the lords. So they were resented by the peasants. Uh, and this resulted in violence against them. The pogroms began in Europe because of the resentment uh, uh, and, and jealousy, basically. Uh, too much success for the Jewish people uh, because their ability to accumulate wealth and their un unwillingness to assimilate. They had a very strong culture, centralized culture, and they would not, they would live in people's societies without any problem. And they would obey the rules of the society, but they would not assimilate into the cultural and religious practices of the society. So the, they were viewed as pariahs. They were viewed as people who were taking and keeping to themselves. Oddly enough, this they became so good at wealth creation that they were needed, even though even if they didn't take part in the religion of the uh, areas that they lived in, they were major brokers uh, as far as financing in these uh, in these territories, and so they were in particularly greatly needed by the kings and lords, and so. Uh, but, you know, it caused more trust, distrust. They, the Jews were, um, they were, they were basically disenfranchised in uh, med medieval Europe. There were laws enacted against them. Literally, they could not own land. You could not marry them. And uh, they were forced to be the middlemen of Eastern Europe. And so, and as middlemen, we mean traders, we mean the garment district, um, garment industry, which they're still strong in today, but also in financing and doing loans and becoming the bankers of middle of the Middle Ages. And so, and they were so skilled at what they did, they literally, when they were ousted, and sometimes they were just told to get out. Because people were too were tired of them and distrustful, and used them as scapegoats, they were ousted from territories like Spain. The economic systems of those territories literally collapsed, and then they had to bring the Jews back to those territories, to those countries, and what have you. And so, there was a natural dynamic that existed between the Jews and the kings because the uh, urban environment was a natural protection for them because when they were out in the countryside in the rural areas, they were very susceptible to pogroms and, you know, being ambushed. The inner city became a, a better refuge for them, uh, which was conducive to trade and banking because all of the industries in the, in the other industries were, were in that urban environment. So it made it easy for them to do business um, as far as banking. Uh, because of the strong cultural dynamic and refusing to go away from their culture, uh, they became hated. 
uh, and 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 they were hated by the church because of the revenues that they were taking away. Obviously, so they were routinely expelled. Uh, and this is one of the things that um, caused people to persecute them, but all ultimately they always overcame that. Uh, they're definitely they're literally records of Jews, and this is and people think that Jews are just rich people. They have all the money. They they have all the wealth. Jewish people at the turn of the century literally came to poor neighborhoods with Italians and Irish and consistently outproduced them as far as producing doctors and lawyers from the same economic background and the same schools. So this is a situation where they were poor, the Irish were poor, the Italians were poor, and even in that environment, the Jewish offspring usually became doctors and lawyers and certainly became entrepreneurs. And so not that the Irish and the Italians didn't become entrepreneurs and doctors, but not to the extent that the Jewish kids did. So this is, you know, their strong culture and their value system has always aided them. And even when you look at the state of Israel, the history of Jewish people is non-agrarian, as we just talked about earlier. In the countryside, they were susceptible to pogroms and ambushes by other ethnic groups that resented them. Their best course of action was being urban, which they were. They were inner city. When you look at the state of Israel, it was it, when it started, it was sewn together by kibbutzes, which is communal agrarian society. Now, uh, uh, Israel became an industrial nation, obviously, certainly, and a very powerful economy. But when Israel started, there were a bunch of Jews farming, which is not something that they did for thousands of years. What aided them it was their unity. What aided them was their centralization of their culture that said, and, and, and their ability to act as one, their ability to learn what was necessary from other people. So if they were not, if you're talking about the people who are non-agrarian, they had to learn their agriculture from somewhere, right? Because that's not what they were doing for the last thousands of years. So the Jews had the ability to take other people's knowledge of agriculture and dispense it throughout their whole nation, which helped to solidify and start and create the state of Israel. So these are the things that uh, this strong culture has been a major catalyst in helping the survival of the Jewish race. So if we're looking at what helped the Jewish race, we now need to, and we see centralized culture has helped the Jewish race. I now want to look into how having a decentralized culture has helped, has hurt ethnic groups. Namely, I'm obviously I'm looking at the African American community, but there are other communities as well, not just black people. So when you look at, and again, this is an easy thing to reference. When you look at China, when you look at uh, India, massive nations, massive nations. Both nations are bigger than the United States. England 
a much smaller nation basically colonized both India and China. So how did the, the question has to be, how did this small, powerful nation and productive nation overtake and control these two powerful, much larger nations of China and India? And of course, the answer is both of those nations were not nations at the time. They were factionalized. There were whole regions. Essentially, they would war with each other before they would war with the British. And so it was easy for the British to make deals with different factions in China, different factions in India, to maintain their authority. And to and if there was a and if there was a faction that was powerful, to actually work with the other Indians or Chinese against that faction. So that's one of the reasons that aided them in the colonization of China and the colonization of India. The decentralization of both of those countries' cultures. And that was used against them. Okay, so now let's look into the black race and the African-American community and the African race, uh, historic African race, and see how having a decentralized culture has hurt them. The great author Chancellor Williams wrote in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, that the West African population who occupied that area were in fact refugees from East Africa, where they built several societies and civilizations with one unknown central language that's still unknown, that unified them, because of natural disaster and the immigration of Arab populations from Asia Minor they began migrating across the continent to the western part of Africa. As this happened, they began splitting up, going into different parts of West Africa, and forming their own tribes with their own tribal languages and cultures. Now, this had consequences. With one African country having up to 100 tribes, that's basically have one country with 100 countries inside of it, Having no central um, state to deal with, European incursion was unchecked, and instead of unifying uh, the African population, the common um, to the common threat that the white incursion the Europeans posed to the regions, actually on the contrary, the slave trade caused an infractional wars to ensue where African tribes began warring with each other to create slave surplus to sell to the Europeans. Now, let's clarify. You're taught in school that slavery was, okay, white people enslaved blacks, and that's the end of it. Slavery existed in the continent of Africa thousands of years before the uh, white Europeans came to Africa. As a matter of fact, uh, if we want to be as Chancellor Williams makes a point in his book, basically the Europeans finished off the African. The African population, and particularly when you look at Africa as a hegemony, as a as a imperial power, with great African nations here, the 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 the, uh, the Ethiopians and, and great African nations, the Ashanti, uh, all these nations were warring with each other long before the Europeans came. And if anything, the Arabs from Asia Minor 
began slave hunting and working with other Africans to enslave Africans. So that's simply the fact. The fragmentation is that the black race uh, has created a factional reality. And the black man has not needed to build his own, uh, his own nations, his own societies, his own civilizations in 5,000 years about. This has had um, some dire consequences. The non-nation building, the black male doesn't value power. He values physical prowess over wealth creation. He values, um, he questions all black authority. He's, nat he's naturally subservient to any regular authority. He pursues mating rights uh, and intimidates, uh, and attempting to instead of attempting to dominate the ecosystem by which he resides, meaning he does not mind not owning. He does not mind not having influence over the towns he lives in. He does not mind not having influence. He almost expects that. Not having influence over the states he lives in. And so he does not take much um, as far as being active in the community like he should. Uh, we, we are more, which leads to other consequences. When bad things happen, we are activism which is what I call reactivism. Reactivism means bringing to light problems in society, which is a good thing. Activism and reactivism is you're at least doing something. But when we go back to, when we talk about building a civilization, you don't have to have activism because your civilization should take care of that in the first place. And so what is lacking in the black community, we don't have that. And so we're dysfunctional and, dis and, and fractionalized, so we're out in the middle for bad things and, and, and uh, bad things to happen to our population. And then we talk about those negativities, and that's activism. They're at least, let me clarify, they are at least doing something. That takes courage. It takes courage when you're Colin Kaepernick and you, you, you take a knee. People don't like that. It takes courage when the athlete says, you know, this is something that I'm complaining about. This is wrong. Um, so we're not putting activists down. We're not putting black activists down. And we're not saying black activism is a bad thing. But the reality to black activism is it is, a, it is not proactive. It is black reactivism. And that is not what takes power and creates power. And so, and we've gone away from that. And so... The consequences of the black man not needing to build and maintain his own civilizations and society is he's become remedial in the areas of military, military science, power creation, and acquisition, not even understanding how both of them work together, making him vulnerable to other ethnic groups and a marginal ally at best. The so-called black community is quick to antagonize and alienate and disrespect one another with an emphasis on not being disrespected. That's crazy. So you better not disrespect them, but they're not really looking to, just to respect you. This ecosystem of, of hostile discontinuity, discontinuity manifests itself in what I call black zombie nation. So what is black zombie nation? The inability to understand power, the inability to uh, pursue wealth creation, nation building. Wealth creation has to operate within an ecosystem. It has to operate within an ecosystem of a nation. 
That is what protects the wealth building. So if you just start a business, that's good. But what ecosystem does that business operate in? That is a nation. That is a community. That is black civilization. That is a society. That has to have rules. That has to have direction. That has to have people where people are accountable. All of that is put together, and, and the glue of that is, of course, culture. If you don't have that, you can't have the other stuff. And so Black Zombie Nation is, you know, we have the inability to create our own security. We have the inability to create its own economy. The inability to create wealth as individuals. The inability to create a diaspora. See, a di people get com confused when they use that word, diaspora. Diaspora is a system by which an ethnic group connects to one another either in any way, uh, with language, with telephones, computers, anyway. Uh, uh, we had a diaspora 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, the drum. The African bongo was a, was a communication device. So you could communicate to people miles and miles away about impending danger, uh, the birth of someone important, the death of someone important. Those bongos were critical component to communication. So that was a, a critical component to a diaspora. So what other ethnic groups that have a diaspora communicate to each other globally? They communicate with each other locally. And, and literally, if they have their own language, they can communicate to each other right in front of you without you even knowing because they're speaking their own language. We're, that's what we're talking about when we talk about a diaspora. So not having a culture has affected the blacks, uh, the African-American communities and the African community uh, to create a proper diaspora. Now, people get confused with diaspora because, you know, like there are certain things that I do as an African-American that can be related back to Africa. Uh, and, and African culture, and it, which is true, even to rap music, um, uh, bunches of things that can be elementary, you know, when you break down elementary, uh, goes back to Africa. And so that's tradition, and that's a form of a diaspora. But if there, if a, a African diaspora existed, I wouldn't be talking, I would be able to talk to people in, in Nairobi in one language. I would be able to talk to people in Nigeria in our African language. And we would com converse back and forth about issues that are important to us and important to them based on their location and our location. We would be able to conduct commerce. Since black people are discriminated in America um, as far as getting jobs and, 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 you know, first last hired, first fired. That's the history of the black labor force. In America, well, there are other places where there are black economies, right? How, what kind of economy do we have with Africa? What kind of economy do we have with Caribbean? What kind of economy do we have with blacks in Great Britain? That's when you, when you talk about diaspora, that is a, a diaspora. So if you're not talking about that, you know, uh, even healthcare is hard to create to keep when you don't have a centralized culture. As far as Black Zombie Nation, I, I, I don't know if anyone know, else notices, but uh, in my area in, in where I live in Charlotte, 
I see Indian people, and now they could be Pakistani, but I'm pretty sure they're Indian. And they all have that Asian, East Asian, East Indian look. And it's not just my community. All the nice communities that have a, a healthy Indian population, they're always walking. I mean, constantly walk, and they walk in groups. They walk together, and um, they they walk as a family. It'll be two dudes walking. There'll be women walking. But the thing I noticed, it's not just one community. I see them doing this all over Charlotte, and so that has to be something cultural. I don't know what it is, but I know what's one of the best exercises that one can do is walking. So that's a cultural thing. So as far as healthcare. Culture can help with that. Strategic planning, all those things are, pro- are parts of culture. And so Black Zombie Nation, are, are people, we're simply not strong at that. You know, we're simply not strong at that. The Black Zombie Nation, not having a central culture makes the Black communities extremely susceptible to gentrification because of the generations not having a strong economic base and, e- and meaning since you're not strong collectively and unified collectively, you did a good job with your kids. They got good grades. They, they got degrees. And so they can get a nice job. They just can't do it in your community because you don't really own or control it. So they leave. So eventually everyone's leaving generationally. Old people are getting old. So now you literally, the property you do own, other people are getting access to it because your people, your young people are leaving. And other ethnic groups are coming over and taking, you know, taking over your, your, uh, your communities. And so we, here, we tend to focus on emotional issues instead of the military science of taking power. And there's been a consequence to that. So that's Black, black Zombie Nation. And so today I've created, hopefully, some time to look at Dr. Manning Marable's book, how capitalism has underdeveloped black America. So I want to not only um, uh, have my opinions, you know, how does that stack up to other people's opinions? And so the, this is Manning Marable's most memorable, important book written in a tradition of Walter Rotney's, uh, this is the back of the book, how Europe underdeveloped Africa and drawing on the wealth of recent economic data This book systematically examines how all segments of the black community have been exploited by the dual structures of racism, capitalism. Uh, Marable also explores the role of patriarchy in affecting black women and the black community as a whole. Now, before we get into Dr. Marable's book, like I said, activists, black activism is clearly important bringing to the public and bringing to light inequalities, um, unfairness in society is certainly necessary and something that should be highly respected. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, anyone, Dr. King, any type of activism. But um, when we look into Dr. Marable's book, Professor Marable's book, we're looking at activism and and talking about the need inequalities and the need for the government to to do something about it the problem there is 
since you don't have wealth creation and since you don't have collective wealth, you're asking for people who are not going to benefit from your equality. Really, true, to, to, in my opinion. You certainly, if you had more unity and the ability to create an economic power base, that would affect your, your influence on government. Therefore, you would have better influence on its policy. All right? Businessmen and investors hire generals. Um, actually, businessmen and investors hire politicians. Politicians hire generals and police chiefs. It goes in that order. So if you're an ethnic group that wants to uh, move into an area, protect your own security, protect your resources, protect yourself, that's the line. It, it, you know, the, the, that is the hierarchy. Business investors, politicians, then the military or law enforcement, which is the same thing. Military, law enforcement, one's international, one's national. They both have the same object, uh, objectives, really, to protect property. So as, as a decentralized, fragmented culture, community, what, what do we say about the black community? Our ownership is not strong, and what property we do own, we're not good. Gentrification is an example of that. We're not good at leveraging it anyway. So why would the government um, be too responsive to our suffrage? Here's where the government is responsive. When your children glow in the dark, I like to say, when your children glow in the dark, that's when the federal government will act. Meaning when a, a, a business and a corporation, as we have a, you know, these big, large industrial um, entities do horrible things, dump poisonous waters into, into rivers and, and lakes and ponds, and you know, they do stuff to mess up the environment and kill people. And usually those people, that are killed are poor people. And people don't realize this regardless of race. It's not just black people, it's white people, poor, particularly the rural areas. There are some horrible things. Aaron Brockovich was a movie about that. So in that instance, when you can prove that, the government's going to act because they have a constitutional responsibility to do that. But that's after everyone's dying, you know? That's after the, the, the businesses, and, and here's the... the bad part about that, the, the companies have made their profit and wealth, so you've given them no reason to change their approach. So they got caught, they might have lost the, uh, they may have lost the, the, the lawsuit, um, the class action lawsuit, which they try to, they try to, um, they try to delay those till everyone dies, basically, and, uh, but there's no reason for them to pick up, move somewhere else and do the same thing. They're going to make their money. They may get caught. There may be some losses. But in the end, there's no reason for them to change because of people not having power. And so the, the, the power base comes from economics. And the economics comes from unity. So it's interesting to see what Dr. Uh, Marable, and I've, <laughs> I've taken up a lot of time. Hopefully I have enough time. We're going, to go, we're going to get through this book. So I need to say what I need to say. 
we're going to get to Dr. Professor Marable's book. I think it's a great book, and he makes great points, as any activist does. They make great points that make you think. And so let's break down the, the table of contents, uh, and we're going to look at a couple of chapters. And then we're going to read those, you know, read excerpts from that chapter. So um, the intro is the inequality and the burden of capitalist democracy, a point of view in black history. Okay, so that's, that's the content of the book, uh, the first part. And so the chapters in this is he's focusing early in the book on the black majority, the domestic periphery, the crisis of the black working class, the black poor, the highest stage of underdevelopment, uh, groundings with sisters, talking about black women. Um, he gets into the black elite, the domestic core, political leadership, the ambiguous politics of the black church the destruction of black education. I like it. I like it. Uh, these are other chapters. There's a chapter on the destruction of black education, a chapter on the ambiguous, uh, ambiguous politics of the black church and the political leadership. And so again, my point is the decentralization of black, of the black race. And so Dr. Marable's already going into, and he's looking at those groups uh, separately and exposing the inefficiency of these groups. I can't wait to read it. I already read it, but I forgot. So I'm getting into points. I think I read this book like 10 years ago. But, um, and it was in my, and let's give credit what credit is due. This is from the library of Clarence Thomas Jones Sr. My father was an activist. He was a, um, a very activist, active person, president of the Civic Association. Uh, he's a 60s guy. So uh, he was the uh, executive director of a human service agency. Clarence Thomas Jones Sr. was serious business. So I, I, there's no way I can get around that. that. My father was the man in that aspect. And so a lot of the stuff that I, I formulate, I certainly got from him. And so, and, and, the, and, and uh, um, since I'm bringing it up, the whole idea of the importance of wealth and business, I essentially got from him because he worked the lines of activism and social justice and working for social programs in doing this, he understood where the real power uh, was. The power was with wealth. If you get the wealthy people behind you, you can do it. And so his, his advice to me is basically we need to become the wealthy people. If, if we want to have power to help ourselves, he did not say that directly to me, but when I summarized being around my father, definitely, um, Clarence Sr., I definitely got that. You know, I needed to start a business. That's what I knew I needed to do. So uh, we're going to look into different parts of this book and take a look at the meanings, you know, at the, the excerpts of the books, but also uh, relative to black civilization and black zombie nation. So, this chapter, what chapter are we at? We're at the uh, inequality and the burden of the uh, the uh, black democracy, uh, the burden of capitalist democracy, a point of view in black history. Okay. 
All right. So we're in the beginning, the point of view of black history. The first and fundamental inescapable problem, Dr. Uh, Marable says, the first and fundamental and inescapable problem of American democracy, the, the W.E.B., he says, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote in 1921, is, is, uh, is justice to the American Negro. The, the naughty dilemma of racism was not simply a question of American, America's failure in race relations. Racism was the core of every issue re- relating to power, economic, production, culture, and society. Thirty years later, writing in the National Guardian, Du Bois argued that the twin pillars of white capitalism, capitalist oligarchy, were domestic racism and colonialism. Until international and domestic racism were smashed, no serious discussion of democracy could even even occur in the United States. Du Bois, the central, uh, the central, the central, the centrality. Oh, for Du Bois, the centrality of racism was not just a burden for non-whites, but had to be openly and unconditionally recognized by white progressives. It was only through the development of an anti-racist of anti an anti-racist politics that the real material needs of all oppressed people could be addressed. The fight for black liberation, the realization of, the, of democracy for all, making white people, um, the making of white people. Now, this is, this is an interesting point, and I, I wrote on the sidebar the making of white people. Uh, Professor Manning will make an excellent point citing W.E.B. Du Bois, saying that racism is the pillar of American society, uh, that's a fact. That is true. And, and a fact dramatized or, or brought out by a professor, Dr. Weiss, that talks about the making of white people. And what he was saying was, in the 1600s, um, the thing that galvanized American society, uh, when the, the, and they weren't slaves, when the indentured servants came to America, and uh, you can pull up the Bacon Rebellion of 1676, but uh, it happened before then. But the indentured servants and the and sometimes the Indians and black slaves or black indentured servants, basically the poor people at times, there would be uprisings and the poor people would take over the land and property of the rich people. And so the... the uh, the whites, the power in Great Britain knew that this is an economic venture, and if this is going to be the issue, we're not going to be able to make our money. Basically, all the poor people will rise up and kill and take the property of the rich people because there are not that many rich people relative to poor people. So they needed to be segmented, segmented. The way they did this, and the the indentured, the white people, whether they were indentured servants or not came here not together. So in 1600 and 1500 in the United States, there were not white people, as Dr. Weiss is saying in his videos and his writing. There were actually uh, English, Scots, Welsh, British, uh, Irish, French, uh, Spaniards. There were a lot of white people that didn't get along with each other. A lot. The thing that put them together was, and he calls his book or his 
the video that I saw, the making of white people, when the African slave came and he was put at the bottom of the social status, not even talking about the fact that he was a, a, a product of wealth creation because he was slave labor and cheap labor, but having him on the lowest echelon of society immediately put all the white people at a higher status. So they, they want, it became about them being white people and not, you know, Scotsmen, Welsh, Irish, you know, and French. So there was less fighting. It, 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 it established them as one group. Before uh, slavery, that did not exist. Okay. Uh, the Negro, let's see, in, in this other intro, the true test of democracy, the boys argue, was always found in the examination of a nation's criminal justice and penal system for decades. Uh, du Bois used his new, newspaper columns and articles to challenge the white racist notions of black crime and punishment in the pages of The Crisis, which is a book, his, uh, is his newspaper, in 1922. He documented the tragedy of a 19-year-old black man who was convicted of murder in New York City. Du Bois argued convincingly that the capitalist society, not the young man, was to blame for the murder since he, since he was the victim of ghetto education, um, racist violence, police brutality. In the case of Samuel Moore, written in April 1922, he outlined the plight of a black prisoner who had spent 37 of his 48 years behind bars. In 1931, he criticized the complacency of the Negro petty bourgeoisie towards blacks who were in prison, arguing that the truth is that they, they, uh, that we know perfectly well how often the poor blacks are the victims of police discrimination and judicial unfairness, and that their poverty and ignorance make them the scapegoats of our present criminal law. So Du Bois is talking how the, the in, in the segmentation of society, it talks about um, it talks about how you know the making of white people. We have the making of white people. You're better than somebody. You're not the you're not the slave. And even post slavery, you're not the sharecropper. You're not the black who's at the lowest echelon of society and not really given proper fairness as far as job creation and jobs, and what have you. Du Bois, and, Ma and Dr. Manable is citing this, is saying that the criminal justice system was geared to maintain that order. It was geared to um, keep the blacks alienated from and disenfranchised from normal civil society to the point where, in many cases, whether the black committed a crime or not really didn't matter. And so, um, and, and so he also cites that we, oh, we're, and we're taking a point in black history. So it really didn't matter. That was in his ability to, the white man's ability to maintain that racial order. See, my thing is with a black civilization and, and a centralized culture, was there a point where and again, Du Bois is citing in his writing the lack of 
of activity of the petty black bourgeoisie, which means the doctors and lawyers. So they're doing this to poor people, and the people who would know better are not really active in it and their ability to do something about it. A centralized culture, as I said before, creates a better dynamic between rich blacks and poor blacks, working class blacks, and rich blacks. So that that would give them the ability to act. Okay, the police and all those people operate within a civilization, within a society. You know, was there efforts to try to create your own societies that had its own power base economics? Well, W.E.B. Du Bois, the great black leader, is citing and he's criticizing the petty, petty black bourgeois, which are the black people with wealth, and he's, already, he's calling them out. He's already saying that this does not exist, that the continuity to protect the poor from the criminal justice system that was created to basically scapegoat them. And so it was, it was you know, pretty obvious there were times where black, you know, whether the black man committed a crime in this history, and even in, 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 in today's society, but definitely back then, if you committed, whether a black male committed a crime really was not that important. Uh, inciting black history, uh, let's, get, let's get into another thing, uh, another ex ex excerpt from uh, Manning's, Dr. Manning's book, Manning Marable's book. During the progressive era, Woodrow Wilson's new freedom expanded racial segregation to all levels of the federal government. Simultaneously, many of the most anti-democratic and anti-aristocratic elements of Southern politics were the most reliable allies of black leaders. Well, that doesn't make sense. Um, Southern, um, okay, so we have Southern uh, Barber, uh, Bourbon, Bourbon, oh, Southern Bourbon, I don't understand that, what that says. Southern bourbon Democrats, the commercial class, and landed gentry that dominated politics after 1877 were amongst the staunchest defenders of limited black democratic rights in the face of hostile opposition from the right, from, from the white rural masses. So I think this is saying, um, as, uh, as early as early as 1889, Julius Dreyer, the president of Roanoke College in Virginia, wrote that racial tolerance and black suffrage was essential to Southern political democracy. If we treat the Negro with anything like the fairness, justice, and consideration we claim for ourselves as men, we shall hear less of race antagonism in the future. So there were, there were voices uh, that were calling for equality for blacks even in the South. Interesting. Uh, that wasn't the reality. That was a minority. Uh, the blacks did not possess power. They did not have the ability to punish uh, their enemies. So those whites that were calling for justice and equality were basically a minority. Uh, Benjamin R. Riley, a Baptist minister and superintendent of Texas Anti-Saloon League, believed that middle-class black leaders and educators were morally and culturally superior Wow, were morally and culturally superior to white farmers and sharecroppers. The Negro, he wrote in 1910, has made himself an exception amongst the people of the earth in the rapidly in, in the rapidity of his advancement. 
I've heard this um, written by Dr. Thomas Sewell that blacks after uh, slavery uh, actually uh, really progressed really well and became literate very quickly after post, you know, post-slavery. But see, the problem is, what were they able to do collectively with that? And I think W.E.B. Du Bois is kind of citing that. Um, Dr. Marable is, 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 is talking about the whites who were saying that give the blacks a, a fair shake and give them a fair hand. Those people basically were minorities. As we see, Woodrow Wilson was bringing the, the white segregationist policies from the White House. So in spite of these white people um, calling for fair treatment of blacks and integration of blacks, there were, you know, the guy at the top was going the opposite direction. And so it, it calls it calls for me, it tells me the need for a central culture, the need for a collective power, economic and political power of black people. So uh, the white conservatives endorsed Black educator Booker T. Washington and the state and state support for black uh, for black industrial and normal schools and opposed the complete disenfranchise, uh, disenfranchisement of all blacks despite the biracial politics of populism in the 1890s and integrated uh, and integrated unionism in isolated southern cities the white working class did not usually accept even minimal rights for black people so we have. You have a certain portion of white conser- Southern conservatives. I, I, I did not pick up on this, calling for fair treatment of blacks, but Southern white working class. And so what we have, and I think this is, this is a great point I wanted to make this week. Um, you have working class whites not really wanting to have fair and equal, equal treatment of blacks. Why? Because these blacks, of course, would be competing with them. So that kind of makes sense. But that goes back to me, that to me goes into black civilization and not maintaining and creating our own societies and civilizations and the consequences of that. And so one part of black domination is the lack of continuity between the working class blacks, poor blacks, and uh, upper class blacks. This has been a historic problem and something that we have to continue, we have to continually uh, be working on. We're about to end the show. Before we do, I want to get into a current event, uh, current uh, observation that gets into black zombie nation and uh, the lack of black civilization. We have a current issue in society about the critical race theory uh, in America. And so... Uh, they, there's a lot of opposition to the critical race theory and basically teaching our students and, and young people uh, more of a realistic history. Uh, the reality of that is the opposition that's come up uh, against critical race theory is, has been abrupt, immediate, and large. And this is what is called military science. And so. See, what a lot of people don't realize, when you start teaching critical race, it's interesting. It's, I don't think it's a coincidence that we have critical race theory when we're now hearing rumblings of black reparations. 
and I've never heard it. They've always talked about 40 Acres and a Mule, Spike Lee's movie company years ago. Um, it, it, that's referring to, you know, the expectations of black reparations after slavery. So that's always been talked about, but not seriously until now. And so it's interesting that, you know, the critical race theory and the reparations are kind of all intertwined coming around the same time. And so basically, if you talk factual history, you know, there, there's been a lot of injustice done specifically to black people. And so what, what are you going to do about it? So that's what, you know, the critical race theories makes that a talking point for millions of young people, white. And that kind of leads to, okay, what are you going to do about it? But the interesting thing about it is how quick and over, you know, very quickly the opposition to critical race theory came about. That's military science. That's understanding where this is leading to and coming up and creating the opposition to it. That's factually what happened. That's what is happening. And so this is where we talk about Black Zombie Nation not being strong, being remedial in military science, being remedial and being able to um, organize and get stuff going proactively. They immediately understand that critical race theory leads to reparations. Reparations is trillions and billions of dollars that no one's, apparently no one's interested in paying. So that's a big uh, part of critical race theory. But more importantly than the actual critical race theory, because I, I think it's irrelevant for black people should be teaching black history. And part of black history is teaching history. And you should be teaching factual history. So if there are people that don't want to teach that, OK, but, you know, we should be teaching our kids um, the truth. And that's a reality of strong ethnic groups. That's one of the pillars to strong ethnic groups in a centralized um, culture in an ethnic group. They know their history. They teach it to themselves. So um, they, you know, and, and so all the, the people who want to go against that really are hampering us because you're not getting a realistic view of, of, of what actually happened in history. So your expectations would be, you know, a little different. If you, we've never done anything to anybody ever, you know, that's not a good way when that's not the facts of history, that's not a good way because those kids are going to grow up and deal with the rest of the world. And so they're going to deal with the rest of the world from that point of view, which is literally not factual. So that's, that's their consequences to that. So the ethnic groups that want to teach the truth, all of it, and good and bad, and see what we can see, what, you, what it's, it's for, what it should be used for is to learn from. Not to say you're the bad people, you're the good people, you're what have you, but it is to learn how do we do it better. So our children, our eight-year-olds, our nine-year-olds, and our 12-year-olds in our school systems, they're, they're, the gauntlet should be given to them. How can we build on democracy? How can we do it better? And so it's hard to do that without having that factual truth. But the bottom line, of my show is the military science of of the uh, white population realizing what critical race theory would lead to and putting an immediate roadblock up to it. So, and they've done that. But um, this week's 
been very interesting, a lot of fun. I've taken this time to make my case for the need of a centralized culture in the African-American community and the consequences of not having a centralized culture in the African-American community. I've, I've wanted, I've liked taking a look at other groups that have had centralized uh, culture, strong central cultures, and how they benefited from it. And so I've, I've made my case this week. And so we'll be looking forward to talking to you again. Thanks for your time. 